You are listening to the weekend message of Crossroads Church North Campus. Crossroads exists to make much of Jesus, and we do this by following in the way of Jesus and making disciples who love God and love others. To find out more about Crossroads, go to crossroadslive.com. Thanks for listening. Grace and peace. Okay, this morning we are in Luke 9, verses 18 through 27, reading out of the ESV. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be risen. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You may be seated. (laughs) Andrew hyped it up too much, but that's okay. (laughs) My name's K2. I've gone by that since I was a baby. So Kevin the second, if you have questions on that, that's fine. (laughs) But thanks for being here this morning and uh, privileged to preach. So for you in Luke chapter 9 there is where we're going to be walking through. Now I know for most of us... um, We've all experienced conflict in life, right? We've, we've walked through difficulties. We've walked through arguments. If you're married, definitely that has happened. And I remember my first, I'll say, big conflict with my wife. Uh, we didn't fight much until we got married. And I remember we got home from our honeymoon, and we drove into the garage, brand new life together. And at that point, my wife informs me that we're going to be returning one of our wedding gifts. I thought that was rather odd timing to begin with. What are you talking about, honey? She says, uh, the, the plastic Tupperware, it wasn't on our registry, so we're going to return that. I'm like, what? Why? And she's like, well, it's, um, it's better for the environment. It's better quality. It's easier to wash. It doesn't leach BPA into our food. It stores better in the freezer. All kinds of things. We can bake with it. It's just better quality stuff. All a really great argument, right? Unfortunately, I didn't hear any of that because I was so wrapped up in my own thoughts that I wasn't listening. I didn't listen to a thing she said. All I heard was, money, I'm freaking out. We're 22. We're broke. Like, what are you talking about? So I didn't hear what she was actually saying. She made a great argument. I didn't listen to any of it, unfortunately. And uh, that really doesn't matter a whole lot when it comes to Tupperware, right? But when it comes to the Scripture, that's really my bigger concern is sometimes we come to Scripture and we aren't actually listening. We aren't actually paying attention to what Jesus is actually saying. We already kind of come sometimes with our own preconceptions, our own presuppositions, that we aren't actually wrestling with what the text says. 
So as we walk through this this morning, we're going to see the disciples, we find ourselves in good company. The disciples aren't always listening either to what God is actually saying. They already have made up their minds and their hearts, and there's reasons for that. So as we walk through the text, I have three points, and the points are, if they're helpful for you, hold on to them. If not, that's fine. They're maybe for me because I tend to have ADD and go all over the place. So there's two questions, there's two messiahs, and then there's two paths. So we pick it up in verse 18. Now that now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, that's Jesus, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets of old has been raised. Now, so there's the first of the two questions, right? And I find it interesting, this particular question, because he's asking, what do others say that I am, which is kind of interesting, because on the one hand, who cares? Who, who cares what those outside say, Jesus? Just like I was thinking about if, if my neighbors or some stranger thinks I'm the greatest husband in the world, but my wife doesn't, that's a problem, right? I, I want her to think I'm a good husband. So, who, who cares what the outsiders think? Who cares what others think? But Jesus asked this for a reason. So I started thinking and asking him, coming to the scripture of, why did he ask that? Why this question? And so I thought of three different reasons. One, there's an element of relationship. When you ask people questions, you're getting to know them. There's an element of relationship. That might be at a lost art in our day, is asking questions, getting to know people. Second, there's this reality of Jesus maybe wanting to know what, what are the voices, what are the influence? He's a good cultural, uh, trying to be culturally informed. What are the voices my disciples are hearing? What's influencing them? And that's probably a good question for all of us to be aware of. What, what are the voices you're listening to? Whose voice is the loudest in your life? Is it certain podcasts or news feeds or anything like that? Or for some of us that have experienced hard things in life, the voice sometimes the loudest might be a, a spouse or a parent or a boss, a friend. Those voices get loud. So Jesus is asking them, who do others say? What are the voices influencing you? Something to be aware of. And the, the third thing that might be my own little speculation, but I thought it was interesting at least is, Jesus asking, who do others say that I am? It might be an easy opportunity for the disciples to kind of throw out what they think. Here's what I mean. Sometimes it's easier to ask a question you think other people know the answer to. You can ask on behalf of others, right? If you feel like it's a silly question, well, my friend was wondering. So maybe the disciples are like, is he Elijah? I don't know. Andrew says you're Elijah. You're not Elijah, right? It's just a simple way to try and engage in conversation that he's inviting them in, maybe breaking down walls, and maybe the rumors even within the disciples. I mean, if you've been walking with us through the Gospel of Luke, the disciples are confused all the time, right? So it doesn't seem that far-fetched to think that some of them thought were off on who Jesus was. Now, this is a dangerous thing, right? We start assuming everybody in the room knows what we're talking about, so this is important of what's informing the disciples, I was reminded as well, so I didn't grow up in around the church, and like Andrew just said, if we want to be a church where people can ask questions, right? There's no, no dumb questions. This is, this is how we get to know. Otherwise, you're not going to know things. And I remember, so I didn't grow up in around the church. I knew nothing, never read a Bible, didn't know Bible stories. I knew nothing, zero. So I started showing up at Bible studies when I was 22 years old, and people would be like, oh, I'm going to put a fleece out, you know, like Gideon did. I'm like, Who? Who? Does Gideon go to our church? Like, I don't, what are you guys talking about? I have no idea. So, so we do that. Or, you know, it's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm like, is that the pastor? Like, what are you guys, what are you guys saying? And it's comical, but can you picture me? I'm like, well, apparently everybody else knows what we're talking about except me. So 
It's embarrassing to ask those questions sometimes. So we want to be a place because sometimes we make those dangerous assumptions. You've probably had those in life talking about conflict as well, right? How, how often when you've made assumptions about people and relationships has that led to conflict rather than asking a clarifying question? Assumptions lead to conflicts. I was reminded of another time of my own lack of humility, I'll say. Um, a guy I was growing as a follower of Jesus, I guess, and a guy came up to me really excited to tell me about his story. I got to share the gospel with this guy, and he didn't believe in God, so I walked him through the ontological argument. K2, can you believe he had never heard the ontological argument? And I was like, yeah, people with their not knowing, I mean, it's obvious with the ontological argument, maybe you, like me, are like, I don't know what that is. I still don't know what the ontological argument, because there was an assumption that, oh, everybody knows the ontological argument. I still don't know it. I lack the humility in that moment to ask a question. So, I mean, questions are very important. I was reminded of another time. So, uh, like Andrew said, I love to walk through the Bible with people. It's one of my favorite, favorite things to do, especially people who are newer to the Scripture and are foreign to it. One guy I was meeting with, he had been in, the ch- in around the church his whole life, Christian his whole life, me, not so much. So we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, and at one point as we're walking through it, he looks at me and he says, K2, are, are Muslims Christians? Like, like, do we worship the same God? Like, I know they believe in one God. Like, are, are, are they Christians? Grown up in the church his whole life, by God's grace, the environment had been created that he asked that question. And so I said, no, how could you think that? No, no, no. That would, that would be the wrong way to respond, right? And if you know me, you probably know what I said. What do you think? It's my favorite question to ask. My kids probably get tired of it. My friends probably get tired of it. What do you think? I already know what I think. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. So I was like, well, what do we know about Jesus from the Gospel of Mark? So we talked through that. Well, what do you know that Muslims believe about Jesus? We talk about that and maybe read some stuff. And it's like, well, here you go. Do we worship the same God? No, they believe different about Jesus. Yeah, that's what I would say too. So we walk through that because of the power of questions. And and there was an assumption. He had assumed everybody probably knew the answer. But by God's grace, otherwise he, he asked that question. Otherwise, who knows? Confusion can enter into a church quickly if we're not clarifying our terms. And that's going to continue on in this text. And then we move into really the second question, which is really the more important question. Verse 20. Then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God. Now, that's really the question above all questions. Historians all agree there was a man named Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago, and we have to figure out what we think about this guy, right? Something happened. You have to decide, have to decide who he is. And I love and agree with that C.S. Lewis had this quote uh, about this idea, and I can't help but wonder if he was thinking on this text. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity, and it's all about Jesus, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So who is Jesus? This, this matters. He can't, he can't just be in the middle somewhere. He's either of infinite importance and he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. That's really what Lewis is saying here, right? He can't just be something squishy in the middle. He claimed to be God, which is true, should change your life. If not, disregard him. That's kind of what it comes down to. Who is Jesus? And we see here that Peter responds. At the end of verse 20, Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
And now if you were to jump over to the parallel text in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually responds to this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's kind of like Jesus' attaboy, right? It's like, Peter, you've been paying attention. Well done. Good job. I'm so proud of you. You got the answer right. So that's good. But then we move on to point two, where there's two messiahs going to pop up. Hopefully that will come clear. Verse 21 and 22. And he, that's Jesus, strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So there's Peter responds to this question. And Jesus immediately, which I would argue there's a reason, immediately Jesus starts defining what did Messiah come to do. There's no longer questions back and forth. Jesus is going to define his term. Did you see that? I must do this. Now, again, I'm going to grab from Matthew's gospel here. How does Peter feel about that? You remember Peter's response? If you jumped over to Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Uh oh. What just happened? We got two different messiahs now. Did you notice that? Jesus is, is Jesus confused that I'm going to suffer, maybe I'm going to do this? No, no, no. The text said must. I must suffer, die, and rise. What did Peter say? Never. We got two different messiahs now. There's one that never dies and there's one that must die. Definitions start to matter again, don't they? How you define that word messiah, we could assume everyone here knows what the word messiah means. But clearly Peter and Jesus, they have different definitions here. And again, think about if you're unaware of the first century context, if you're a follower of a rabbi, to rebuke them, utterly shameful. Like people hearing this story, other Jews, or even probably if you went into a Muslim context and told this story, and be like, and then Peter rebuked the rabbi. They'd be, oh, he did what? You, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. You should not be rebuking your rabbi. Peter clearly feels pretty strongly about this, strong enough to rebuke his rabbi to cross a cultural boundary, so to speak. He feels this strongly. He's fixated on his Messiah. Reminds me of a professor of mine in seminary said that words have meanings. And meanings have, or those meanings, they create ideas and ideologies, and I would say they create theology, Right? And then those have consequences downstream. So how we define things, we've got to make sure we're using the same dictionary here because those words have meanings. And if we have two different meanings, we're going to have confusion. G.K. Beale wrote a book about biblical theology, like a, a study of idolatry. And he named his book, What We Become Like What We Worship. Kind of tracing idolatry through the entire Bible and that narrative. This idea of what you worship, you will become like. So, for example, if, if I asked you to define God and you define God or an image comes to mind of who God is, that's going to shape your life. If you think God is this vindictive, wrathful, hateful, power-hungry tyrant, well, what do you think is going to start showing up in your life? All those things, right? Are, are you going to draw close to that God? No, absolutely. You're just going to try and steer clear and not get in trouble. If that's your view of God, if that's how you're defining the words, you see how definitions matter. But if you think God, when I say God and you think, 
oh, the omnipotent creator of all things who's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness, merciful, forgiving, full of grace and full of truth. That's going to change things, right? Those things will start pouring out. And I'm just quoting, that's John 1, 14 and Exodus 34, 6 and 7. That's biblically who God's revealed himself to, to be. Is that how you define God? Is that how you think about him? So here we have two different messiahs. Now, it would be easy to maybe dogpile on Peter in some ways and be like, oh, if you've been following the narrative, right, these disciples are always like missing the mark, not paying attention, forgetting stuff. Before we dogpile on him too much, let's, let's think about what he's witnessed so far. If you've been following Jesus thus far, you've seen Jesus walk on water, you've seen him heal diseases, you've seen him cast out demons, you saw him, he can read people's minds, he just fed thousands of people with basically nothing last week we watched, he calmed a raging sea, he's raising dead people. If you're watching this guy, you're probably amazed, like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe I get to follow this guy. And if you start thinking he's Messiah, you're like, oh, I can't. I'm, I get to walk with him. I'm like the closest one to the, the king that's coming. You're getting excited. And maybe it kind of makes sense if you were living under Roman oppression at this time, or you're not well thought of, you're not well liked. Rome is this crushing power over everything you think and feel and believe. You probably are grasping for hope, right? You're, you're kind of desperate. We've all been there. When you're desperate, you're just grabbing for stuff. That maybe. The disciples or whispers that started going around of maybe some biblical texts. Like I thought of the Davidic covenant. Some of you might be familiar with that. If not, 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about the Davidic covenant. That one from the line of David will reign as king forever. So if you're Peter, you watch this. Oh, I know kings. We've seen kings. Kings rule. Kings have power. This is, this is incredible, and our Messiah can, can raise dead people. He can feed thousands. This is going to be the easiest takeover ever, and I get to be second in charge. You start dreaming. Of course you're going to rebuke your rabbi. When you get stuck on that thinking and you start twisting a biblical text, I also thought of Genesis 3.15. Many call that the first gospel, right? The proto-evangelion, many refer to it as. It's this idea that back in God promised in Genesis that one from the seed of the woman is going to rise up and crush the head of the snake. This is their hope, right? So if you've been living in Rome, you're like, oh, man, I hope they send Messiah to, to crush this snake any day now. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. And then the whispers start going around. You guys know who the snake is, right? It's Rome. Yeah, it is Rome. I, I knew. I knew it was Rome. And Messiah's here, and he's going to kick Rome out. I can't wait. This is going to be incredible. I can't wait to be king alongside Jesus. But you should hear, if you, if you know the Bible text, hold up, Genesis 3.15, the, the snake is Rome? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. But you see how easily I could twist and I could, we could try and convince and I can point to a Bible verse and the snake was not Rome. The, the snake was Satan, right? The snake was the accuser back in the garden and that's what Messiah is going to crush. Rome is nothing compared to Jesus coming and crushing evil. And that's the promise. That's what Messiah came to do, is crush that. Not, not these other little things, but you could see how they get convinced. They might even start twisting scripture to start conforming Messiah into their image, into the Messiah they wanted. I, I don't really want the, the Messiah that dies. That sounds terrible. 
I was reminded of a, a song that I really liked, I don't know, five, ten years ago. Beautiful Eulogy it was kind of a hip-hop group that was a popular group out of Portland. But he had this line that I just always rings true whenever I hear it. It just feels like this mic drop moment. So Odd Thomas wraps this line, Beautiful Eulogy says, in a song called Symbols and Signs. He says, yep, are you the kind that's completely consumed by symbols and signs? If you are, that's fine. But don't you find it's interesting how most of the time your self-interpreting seems to coincide with what's deep inside your heart's desire? Seems rather convenient, doesn't it? Do you see that ever in yourself? We start reading scripture. We start engaging with Jesus. Oh, this means what I already, well, look at that. Jesus is already on my side and thinks exactly like me. And the, and the text stops actually changing us because we start changing it to fit our desires. And again, like Odd Thomas says, that seems rather convenient, isn't it? Oh, well, look at that. You desire this and all of a sudden the Bible wants to go that way. Isn't that a coincidence? We stop listening sometimes to what the text is actually saying. And don't, I don't say this with any sense of self Like, I struggle with this. We, we all have these tendencies to start doing that. The other evidence I was thinking about that the disciples clearly aren't listening, and maybe you caught it there as well. Did you catch what Jesus said? So he says, I'm going, I must suffer, die. And then what was that last thing he said? Be raised? Be raised. And none of the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, quick question. Um, I know you're kind of ruffling feathers, and so people are getting a little frustrated and mad at you. So I get you might suffer because you're making people mad. You may even die. Rise, though. That's, that's, that's weird. We're a little confused. No questions. Really? The dude just said he was going to die and then three days later be back from death, and you have no questions? You're going to ask questions to help you interpret the parables, but not that? They're not paying attention. They're so set. I mean, probably all of them. None of the disciples are asking questions. Peter's bold enough to pipe up and rebuke Jesus about what he believes, at least. But none of the other disciples say anything. They're, they're so set on that kingdom. I mean, I was just thinking, they're painting the room in the castle. Like, I, I'm just thinking, like, they aren't even processing what Jesus is saying. And do we do that sometimes? In life, in God, we're, are we processing what he's actually saying or we're just already jumped to the next thing and like, well, he must have said something else. I won't worry about it too much. So you can see how these two messiahs, but they, they also create, I mean, it's really the true messiah and then there's a whole bunch of false messiahs, a whole bunch of false things we start creating to trust in. And whether if, this text seems is more about power, right? There's an element of, of kingly power they might be hoping in. But there's all kinds of false messiahs we can trust in. So, so what is it for you, for you where you're tempted to, oh, if I do that, that will save me. If I have a little bit bigger house or save more money or do this or do that or a career change or the, the perfect little family or whatever it is. We all have those things of this, this, oh, this, this will save me. It won't. They're false. So this leads right into this idea that there's two different paths based on who Jesus is, which path you want to go down. So two paths, verses 23 through 27. And before we dive too deep into those, I want to start with actually verse 27 and work backwards. Or start with and then jump back. Verse 27. It's kind of a confusing verse. Understandably, I don't know if as you heard it read, you're like, some are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom, like, it's confusing, right? 
It's, it's not like an easy, like, oh, I get it. So I want to give you at least the six possible interpretations of that. You ready? I'm not going to dive too deep into them. Don't worry. But I just don't want you to think I glossed over like, I wanted to know. I was curious. So hopefully this feeds your curiosity. First option of interpretation of that. The very next, if you just kept reading in your Bible, is the transfiguration. Jesus transformed into his glorious body. They see him, Peter, James, and Andrew up on the mountain. They see him, glorified. Possible. Seems pretty compelling, right? Second option is really the resurrection. After Jesus rise from, rises from the dead, they see his glorified body. Some are going to be, that were alive then, are going to be alive and see the resurrected Jesus. Totally possible. The third one is the Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and people are seeing this like, oh my gosh, that could be this element of the kingdom of God. Fourth option is really the entirety of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes on the church and it's breaking out. The kingdom of God is just breaking in and people are tasting the kingdom of God. Some of the disciples are there and haven't tasted death. The fifth option is um, when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. Another possibility, I don't find that one quite as compelling personally, but we could talk about it. It's another option. The sixth is the second coming of Jesus that talks, is talked about in Revelation. That some are not going to taste death until Jesus returns. I find that one the least compelling because I feel like you have to do some ninja gymnastics with the text to really make it overly spiritual. Like, well, he's talking about a spiritual, and I don't know. It could be, but it seems less likely. So hopefully for those of you who are curious about that, um, that satisfies your curiosity. But uh, an important thing, I guess, to keep with that is there's confusing things in the Scripture. And we always want to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main things in the Scripture are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. So if the Bible intimidates you, I totally get that, and I remember being there. But remember, as an interpretive principle, the things that are plain and clear, use those to inform how you interpret the other things. Start with what's clear. Jesus is God, or some of those kinds of things. There's other things. Have discussions. Don't hear me. Don't say that, but keep the main thing the main thing, and the main things are the plain things. I didn't come up with that. That's stealing from somebody else, so don't think I'm that creative. Um, all right, jump back into verse 23. All right, we're going to walk down these two paths. Verse 23, and if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, ho hopefully you notice there, there's a phrase, and in the ESV, they translate it, come after me and follow me. Other versions, depending on what you have, it might say follow me and follow me. It's this phrase is repeated, which is, as a good Bible study method, when you see things repeated, there's usually a reason for that. So this is, when you read it, this is an expectation seemingly according to the text, right, of all followers. It doesn't say once you're walking with Jesus for a long time, then you do the deny yourself thing and then you do the daily cross thing. No. This is the expectation for all followers, right? If anyone would come after me, anyone, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is what you're signing up for. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So this is part of following Jesus. There's an element of self-denial. That's, that's just the reality of following Jesus according to him. And I would point you to as well just this idea of uh, Philippians 2 where Jesus talks about that, where he didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but he humbled himself becoming, the point of, uh, becoming a servant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So there's, Jesus exuded that. He also told us that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So there's an expectation. Jesus has led, I denied myself. I laid it down for others' sake. And that's the expectation of all followers 
of Jesus. And we're frustrated at times, and I get it. I've been there like, why isn't everyone, why aren't they doing it about me? There's followers of Jesus. That's, that's an entitled attitude that I'm falling into when I should be denying myself. We could talk about, I mean, Andrew gave me so much to talk about. Um, this is a lot. I wish I could go so much deeper into each of these things. And this element of taking up your cross daily. So, so remember as well when, if you're familiar with the Bible, we read that in a certain way. The, the idea of a daily cross makes sense to us in some degrees maybe. Or maybe you have an idea at least what that might mean. But keep in mind what the first century hearers were hearing. The, the cross, was it a symbol of hope for them? When Jesus said that, they're like, yes, forgiveness and love and no, absolutely not. No, nobody had cross jewelry. That was not a thing back then. Why? Because the cross was a, a symbol of Roman oppression. It was a symbol of shame. If somebody saw you carrying a cross, you were a criminal, you were horrible. It was bad. Not good at all. And, and yet again, the disciples have, have no questions. No questions here. You said daily cross. You, you want us to go outside the camp and be killed like a criminal? Like, what? You want us to march down the street carrying this level of shame and let everybody look at us and be, what? That's what I'm signing. Again, no questions from the disciples. And, and think about it as well. Daily cross. And this is something I had never really thought about before. Daily cross. If you were lived in first century Israel under the Roman Empire and you saw somebody carrying their cross heading towards Golgotha, you probably weren't thinking, I bet I'll see them next week. Right? Oh, there goes Joe again. He's, he's doing the daily cross thing. That was not a thing back then. Right? Rome was an expert at killing people. There's no daily cross. You picked up that cross once, you walked up the hill, and it was over. Right? And still, no questions from the disciples. Nothing. Are you guys, it's almost like they heard Jesus say, just make sure, when you, if you want to follow me, make sure every day you put on your crown before you go out. I want everyone to know you have a crown. Crown? And the disciples are all like, did you know we were getting crowns? I can't believe Jesus is so generous to give us crowns. This, this incredible Jesus, you're so nice. I love me a good crown. You guys, that would make, that would almost make more sense. Because, I mean, if we keep reading the narrative, these guys are going to start arguing about, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be vice president? Can I be secretary of state? I'll be this. Let's argue over our roles. It's almost like they heard crown. Did he say crown? No. Were they listening? Were they paying attention to what Jesus is actually saying here? And the follow-up question, are we sometimes? Do we feel entitled? I do at times. Verse 24, I think here's where the two paths really become a little more clear. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a, whole, a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, there's kind of this if-then. Now there's, there's two different options starting to appear here. And as I was thinking about that, 
It reminded me of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 7. Here in verse 13 and 14, towards the end of the sermon, Jesus lays out two paths. You remember this? Jesus, there's two different paths. There's a wide way, and it's easy, and lots of people are going to find it. And then there's a narrow way. It's a little more difficult. It's a little more dangerous. Those are the choices of your paths. Kind of sounds like this, right? Do you want to gain the whole world? Do you want to save your life? Do you want to not have to deny yourself and daily, let's, let's not do that. Easy way, go that way. It's easy. We all like easy, don't we? We'll go that way. There's a cost to going that way, isn't there? It's in the text, verse 25. You can go that way. You can gain the whole world. You'll lose and forfeit yourself. Or other versions of the gospel say your soul. There's a cost to going that way. Do you remember in Matthew as well? Do you remember the wide path, the easy path? Where does it go? Destruction, right? These, these are the options of what Jesus is laying before us. Do you see some similarities and overlap here? And you can continue along to talk about the other costs of following the, the wide, easy way. Verse 20, 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in, in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. These are all part of the costs of following Jesus. Do you want to be well thought of? Do you want everybody to like you? I do. Maybe I'll struggle with that morning. Please like me. I want you to like me. I need approval. I don't want to be ashamed. And then sometimes, I don't know if you ever have these wearying experiences where you, where you stand with Jesus. Like, yes, he is the only way. He was clear. John 14, 6. I'm no, no one comes except through him. And then you get mocked by people. It's like, <laughs> you're one of those Christians that still believes Jesus is the only way. Oh, my goodness. Not, not enlightened. You aren't. Have you ever had those, those, those ridicules? And you're like, well, I'm tired of being ashamed. I, I want the easy way. Can I just be well-liked and everybody love me and think well of me all the time and not have to lose my life, not have to deny myself? Sure. But there's a cost with that. Just like there's a cost of following Jesus, and I hope you're seeing as well in these two different paths, sometimes we, we think there's, there's no cost to going this way. Yes, there is. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost both ways. Hopefully you're seeing that in the text. That's what I'm trying to argue, I guess, or convince you from. But where I want to close as we think about following Jesus, maybe some of you are like, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus sounds hard. There's a reality to that. Now I'm going to talk about what Jesus has promised. Hopefully you didn't miss that in the text either. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus has promised life. If you remember from the, the, the Matthew 7 where he's talking about the narrow and the hard path, what does he promise? There's life there. You get life. Ultimately, you get God. What could be better than that? <laughs> so we sometimes want to, we, we try and save ourselves. So we have all these different countless self-salvation projects. If I just save enough money in my 401k or my IRA or do that, build bigger barns and build bigger houses, or maybe if I just fix this or do that, or my family is just perfect and I'll keep them safe, or I'll just live a little bit more comfortably, 
I'll save my life. How's that going? Are any of you else exhausted from trying to save your life? It's exhausting trying to save your life, isn't it? All those things, like, oh, if I just save a little, and then the market crashes, and now we're in a recession, and oh my gosh, my Savior's dying. If that's what you're going to trust in, yeah. You're going to end up like Peter. Be like, no, no, my, my Savior doesn't die. Oh, no, it's dying. This is not good. That, that's part of that path. Or you can chase God towards life like he promised in Matthew 7 and here. You can give your life away and have life. So let me define life, I think, the way Jesus would. In John chapter 10, verse 10. Maybe some of you are familiar. It's a, it's a well-known verse in so many ways. But do you remember that where Jesus says, the thief came to lie, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that you could have life and have it, you remember, uh, abundantly. Is that, is that, do you want abundant life? Or do you want trying to save yourself and being exhausted and all of that on that path? It may seem easy. It's not. Or do you want abundant life with Jesus? It reminds me of the quote by C.S. Lewis, where God's making all these promises. And C.S. Lewis, reflecting on the Psalms, says this. It would seem that if that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. So what's Lewis getting at there? There's this promise of life and infinite joy, and we're going we're gonna to settle for sex and all these other things. I pick a thing, throw whatever on that list, drugs. And, and I say that from a place I've tried most of these things. If any of you have had a, a similar maybe Ecclesiastes, I'll say, or a Solomon kind of moments where you're like, I tried all that the wide way. I had everything, and it was hollow. It wasn't because I didn't try it. I did. I was trying everything failed. And I met Jesus. He changed everything. And that's what Lewis is getting at here, right? If I had a, a deeper desire for the deepest, lasting, best joy, the abundant life that Jesus promised, I'd go after him. John 15, another favorite text of mine where Jesus is talking about abiding in him. John chapter 15. Abide in the vine. Abide in my love. No greater love than this is one lays down his life for his friends. But then at the end of it, you're in verse 11 where he says, these things I have commanded you, all of the abiding, so that my joy, the joy of Jesus might be in you and your joy might be full. Well, there's a promise. You abide in Jesus and you get fullness of joy? How's all the other stuff we're trying? Is it, is it filling? Is it working? Does it last for a second? Or maybe longer, I don't know. Or do, you, or do you want to follow and abide in Jesus and get the promise of fullness of joy? And I'm not saying life isn't hard. He just promised that, right? Following Jesus will be hard, but there's a promise in there of knowing him. There's life there. And hopefully many of you and some of you have heard different testimonies. You found life there. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts, but you get God. You get him. At the end of the day, what can't be taken from you? It's him. If you're going to trust in all these other things trying to save your life, it can be taken in a second, right? Spouse, family, 
stock market crashes, recession, world war, whatever we're on, four breaks out, nukes are firing, all those things, boom, gone. Where'd your hope go? We, we just sang the song. If, if, if that's not your anthem of Christ is my firm foundation, he's the rock I'm standing on, everything else can be shaken. Everything. Can't it? That's the reality. So Jesus is promising these crazy, ridiculous things. I was thinking as well about, I, I love, I mean, some of you heard me talk about missions in Nepal, so that's some of my heartbeat. I love reading missionary biographies. And I was reminded of <clears throat> Jim Elliott's story, if some of you are familiar with Jim Elliott. Uh, he ended up being a missionary to Ecuador. And him and some buddies went right out of Bible college. They heard there was an unreached people group, a people that had never heard the gospel, didn't know anything about Jesus. And him and his buddies were like, they, they got to know. And people were trying to convince them, no, 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 no. That's a terrible idea. Have you heard about those people? They're violent. They're brutal. They'll kill you on the spot. And then Jim Elliot responds, and he's really just echoing the words of Jesus here, where he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So he's almost calling the people that are like mocking him. Like, I think you guys are you guys are trying to save your life. I'm I'm banking on the guarantee of Jesus. I could I could die tomorrow here at Moody Bible College where he was going. Or I could die trying to reach them, and then I'm going to meet the king of kings. You tell me which life makes more sense, following the commands of Jesus and to, to make disciples of all the nations. And so that's what he did. And him and his four buddies, there was five of them, the Ecuador Five, read about them, their incredible story. Um, they were killed. They were martyred. That was the end of their story. That tribe, the five wives actually go back and start sharing the gospel, and like most of the tribe comes to faith in Christ. He's like, we forgive you. For slaughtering our husbands. And now you can read the biographies of some of those kids who are doing amazing things. Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, all these guys. Pete Fleming, fantastic people. But this was, this was him choosing that path towards life. It didn't look like easy. It didn't, but, it, but Jesus was there. And is he worth it? I was reminded as well of the other missionary, James Calvert, might be less known. He was less known to me before I was reading this other book. But in 1838, James Calvert was told by a ship captain who was dropping him off on the, on the Fiji Islands to reach the lost. And the captain turns to him and says, you'll lose your life. I was trying to be a captain. I read stories with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> you'll lose your life and those with you trying to reach those savages. And Calvert responded, we died before we came here. And then that... That sounds like daily cross-live. That sounds like giving your life away for others. And like, I died a long time ago, actually. And it sounds like biblical. You think Paul going at this. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about this as well, right? Galatians 2.20, and maybe a well-known verse to some of us. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I, I don't even, I died. And that's what James Calvert's saying, right? And we're going to celebrate that next weekend as we watch people go into the waters of baptism. You're dying with Christ, right? That's, what, that's what's happening in what we're celebrating. You identify with Christ in his death and his resurrection to follow in this new path of life. It's incredible, and that's what's being offered. So in closing, I want to run through my favorite psalm of these to hopefully 
compel you to choose the harder path. Psalm 16 is a favorite of mine, and I remember when I sent Andrew uh, a copy of his manuscript, I think I just listed like 20 verses about like finding joy and following Jesus, and that was too many. So I landed on this one, and it's my favorite. Psalm 16, maybe some of you are familiar with it. But Psalm 16 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true, right? Jesus on the cross, he died, removed all your sin, that you could be perfectly righteous before him, and then the Spirit Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. Do you have him? You want to be unshakable? You got to be in him. That's the only way. That's, that's why the psalmist there is almost looking towards the future. I've set the Lord before me because he is at my right hand. I can't be shaken. Therefore, this is Psalm 16 verse uh, 9, I think. Therefore, my heart, how do you think your heart's doing? You're like, I'm unshakable. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. Well, yeah, (laughs) don't you think if God, the living God, the creator of all things, loves me, sent his son to sacrifice and die for me, that I could be indwelt with the spirit and know him? Is there a better promise than that? Is there something else that could be offered to you that's better than him? Yes, the way is hard, but you get him. That's the promise. Psalm 16 continues on, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life kind of connected to our text, right? You make known to me the path of life, abiding in Christ. Then what does it say? In your presence, what's in God's presence? Fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So what's the world going to offer you? If that's true, and you have, Psalm 34, you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what's the world going to offer you that's better than fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? It's almost like I was picturing you playing poker and you're like, I got fullness of joy and pleasures and forevermore. What do you got? <laughs> oh, you got the winning lotto ticket? <laughs> what does that last me? i 60, 70 years and then I'm dead? And it ruins families? Yeah, I'll pass. Thanks. I'll go with fullness of joy, fullness of life, fullness of pleasure with the creator with me. So that really becomes the choice for all of us, right? Will you count the cost and follow Jesus, knowing there's promises, knowing also there's costs? I don't want to, if I wanted you to like me, that's, I mean, that's really verse 26. I didn't dig into that too much, but standing with Jesus being ashamed, if I wanted you to like me, I could try and change that. Like, let's get rid of the cost stuff. Let's talk about the joy and the love stuff. Maybe I can get you to like me more. <laughs> that's not the text. The text says there's a cost of following Jesus. There's joy there too. And hopefully some of you have tasted, you found that you've walked that hard road. You've walked with people going through whatever. We, my wife and I have the privilege of walking through different things with people that were brutal and we've spent time on our knees just weeping over brokenness in the world and just things that I could tell stories of. Is it worth it? Yeah. We've got to watch people get baptized that we never thought would. So is that worth it? That's on the Calvary road. It's not the, no, no crown right now. Crown's later. In heaven, here it's cross. So which way do you want to go? That's, that's the choice I, I've made, and hopefully you hear it in me as well. I've made the choice to go the narrow path, but all of us are tempted to go back and snap back towards that wide path, right? Myself included. 
I'm not above this. I'm preaching above my pay grade here. I am. I need this reminder to, to get off that hard road and, and follow harder after Jesus daily. It's, it's daily cross, right? It's daily picking up and following after him. So I'm going to pray for, for all of us that we would do that, that we would choose the choice is yours. So maybe you can pray as well as I pray. So just listen, talk to God yourself. Ask him to reveal those things, where you're tempted, where, where you're actually currently wandering. You're choosing something, not Jesus. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. God, I, I'm amazed at how you can be so good to a, to a wretch like me. Let us, as people, never lose the wonder, never lose the amazement of knowing you, of, of the offer on the table. And may our desires, like Lewis said, be stronger, that we would hunger and thirst for you, like the psalmist says, and only be satisfied with you, God. Give us nothing less than satisfaction from you, and don't let us drink from all the other broken, dirty cistern wells that we're so tempted. God, expose those things that we'd come back to you, and give us people around us. God, let us be a church. Let us be a church of Nevada County that we work together for those things to see the, the gospel go forth, and healthy churches planted, and the disciples made and multiplied, and many would see and fear and put their trust in you, for you are worthy. So help us worship you, and now... We love you, Jesus, and pray all these things in your name. Amen. <laughs> don't say anything. I, 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 I don't ever know what to do there. Um, I don't. I don't. I know we're, we're, we're clapping because the Lord is good. Um, and I'm going to acknowledge this. He's going to hate this. But can you just help me thank uh, K2 for sharing with us this morning? He knows this. I know this. It's not about him. It's not about him. It's about Jesus. Uh, and that's what he's making plain to us today and the choice that stands before us. So thank you for sharing with us today. We really, really appreciate it. And I'm going to let him give the benediction. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words, and thank you guys for listening. Um, Ephesians chapter, t- or chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That text is so powerful in and of itself, but it's particularly powerful for me because this, this is my story. Some of you heard my testimony if you came to Church Without Building last summer of, of how in college I went down the frat road, did all the things and involved with that, but one night I was laying... Uh, my back, and I was blacked out, drunk, and started vomiting. And I would have suffocated and died. Somebody came and checked on me. It's the only reason I'm alive today. So when I read that text, I, I was, spiritually, I was dead. Physically, I also should be dead. In his kindness, he made me alive together with Christ. I hope you never lose the wonder of that, of, of knowing God. It's incredible. It's a gift. So I pray that you know his grace and experience his peace throughout this week, following harder and harder after him every day. He is worth it. God bless you. We'll see you next week.